I want to begin with a story about a few years ago, Bailey and I were registering for our wedding. And when you do this, people come and give you different ideas. They give you bags of things. Register with us, you know, plan with us. Here's some things that you can get, some gifts, some things we can give away. And one of the perks that they offered to newly engaged couples was the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to give all your information, your email, your address, and be entered to win a raffle of a free car, a free vacation, thousands of dollars in groceries. So it's hard to turn that down. And they happen to be out by O'Hare near the airport where you would go to this room and they would give you their spiel. And Bailey picked me up from the airport one day and we went there. And for me, it was near dinner time. So in my mind, I was focusing on, well, sure, let's go there. One of the things they happened to offer was a free dinner. So it's perfect. They hit me exactly what I was looking for. Free kitchenware, free vacation, free travel, free dinner, everything I wanted. And we go there and we start walking in to this room. We sign up. I look around. I don't see any tables or silverware or plates. I just see chairs. I don't smell any delicious food. I look around and a couple of the other husbands particularly look a little hungry, like me, and anticipating that maybe we aren't getting dinner. And it happened to be that what the event was for was for these amazing pots and pans that could cook steak in two minutes and would cook it all the way through convection ovens, all these fantastic knives and cutting boards and vegetables that were steamed to perfection. So it turns out the free dinner was, in fact, small samples of chicken, steak, carrots, barely enough to be considered a snack. And then we slowly began to realize if we were going to get anything out of this event, it would be very expensive. They were talking about buying silverware that you would almost have to set up a mortgage for. And then vacation, of course, we knew there were many hoops we would have to jump through in order to get to the final destination. So we ended up leaving there hungry and a little bit bothered by the waste of time. So the audience of Second Peter finds themselves dangerously close to a similar situation. <clears throat> False teachers began to promise fulfillment to the people and advertisement to them, teaching them things. And in the end, they brought nothing but loss and destruction. Join with me, please, in Second Peter verses 1.20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What was written down in the Old Testament is true, and it's from God. We addressed this a little bit last week. As the famous quote goes, says, those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. And in Peter's warnings to his recipients, to the readers, we find that there are false teachers who have crept in among the church. These are people trying to literally make merchandise out of the church, shear them like sheep for what they're worth. Just like the false prophets in these scriptures from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the Lord, to, who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Or maybe in Ezekiel 13, they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. Or perhaps Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's how it was in the Old Testament, those false prophets. Now, how it will be with false teachers. In Acts 20, Paul is saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And then lastly, in Matthew 7, 15, Christ warns of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. As great are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So that is the past and the present that the church is facing. And notice how Peter switches the title from prophet to teacher. And I see it kind of like this, concerning prophecy. It, it's kind of like somebody is saying, thus says the Lord, declaring a future event or command as the Lord has indicated to them personally. Teaching is saying what God meant by the prophecy and what is proclaimed in them. Prophecy is what will pass in the future, teaching is what's happened in the past and what it means for the future. So, my purpose in this week's sermon and next week's sermon is to look at our future as a church, as we are in a place now where a new teacher will be coming over our congregation, or at the very least, you'll have people like me or others filling the pulpit teaching. So, in this purpose, it is an important side note to say that as we are looking, the pastoral search committee is looking for people. They assess multiple recordings of the people coming in. They assess their teaching. And you can have confidence, as I do, that they're looking at their teaching for something that is an obvious flaw, like what we'll be looking at. So 
In that case, we also shouldn't be over-skeptical or harsh when a candidate does come in to speak. We shouldn't find small flaws and pick all these things out and declare, oh, they're a false teacher. But as we've been looking in First and Second Peter, um, the natural progression of where he goes, I'm, I want to teach through the text as he teaches it through and find where we as a church can learn from what he's talking to, to his readers. So in the first verse, Peter notes that the teachers have come from among you. They carry with them destructive heresies. Now, this isn't the understanding that we have of heresies where we can label somebody a heretic because they believe something wrong. Um, that understanding of the word comes years after Peter writes this, where the heretics do arise from these destructive heresies. It means more of a set of beliefs, a set of understandings, a set of doctrines that this, these teachers are bringing into the church. With these beliefs, usually the conclusion is, that eventually, at some point, they deny the master who bought them. Now, I had a huge struggle this week with this verse. In the beginning of the week, I was studying and trying to look at what it says. I was listening to people, trying to understand, because it seemed to me to say that they lost their salvation, that these teachers had been saved, and that they were no longer saved. I read a lot of commentaries on what they said. They said most of them had been Christians. I listened to a lot of other pastors on the topics and tried to understand what everybody was saying, what was the orthodox understanding of this passage. But in the end, I don't think it means that they were saved. And I think I formulated an explanation, or a good couple points of explanation, to help us understand how they weren't saved or why they weren't saved. So I conclude that they were never truly saved based on the following four things. Number one is... As we looked at 1 Peter, and hopefully you can remember some of the things that we looked at, he gives a very full assurance of salvation. He gives a full assurance that Christ has prepared for us this kingdom that is undefiled, unfading, un imperishable, and that this is secured for us by the work of Christ. For him to be so full on how precious salvation is that we have gained in 1 Peter and then in 2 Peter relay that it can also be lost, doesn't seem to make sense to me. There's also verses in Hebrews 3 where it concludes that some people may look like Christians, but in the end, they really weren't. And then one of the cases that another author used was the story of the Exodus, where essentially God brought Israel out of Egypt and used the terms bought. He bought them out of Egypt. He bought them out of slavery. And yet, as we look through Exodus and into Deuteronomy, we can see that some of them turned away from him. Some of, him. some of them denied that he bought them, even though they were among those who were freed and released. There were still some of them that were never truly part of his kingdom, part of Israel. They were fake and phony. And I believe it to mean that they were never atoned by Christ. And then one of the major passages for this is 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be complained that they are not of us. But for me, among these three things, the last point seems to be the clearer of the illustrations. And it comes from a very personal illustration in Peter's life, very close to him, close as a best friend. 
Judas Iscariot was chosen by Christ to be one of the 12 disciples, working with him, living with him, doing ministry with him. And he called him as one of his disciples. And in Mark 10, it tells us that he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And for the past two or so years, for a while, this verse has thrown me off because I, I wondered, Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ, was given authority to cast out demons and spirits. He was given authority to do the work of the Lord. How is this possible for him to be such an evil guy and then do these things? He was even put in charge of the money. That's a big deal. All the money that came into the ministry of Christ, he was in charge of it. And he was one of the most trusted of the closest circle of the apostles. The apostles trusted it. Jesus didn't trust him because he knew what was in his heart. But the apostles all trusted him. John 13 records this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. After this verse, Christ dons the servant's gear and washes the disciples' feet. He then predicts that someone will betray him. Continuing on the verse, he also says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask him of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Neither one of these apostles, after spending two years minimum with Judas, knew that he was the one that was going to betray him. Simon Peter had no clue. We look at the picture of the Lord's Supper where we have them all lined up and Jesus is in the middle and we can pick out Judas Iscariot. He's this dark figure with black hair hiding among the shrouds. But that's, that's not what he looked like. He looked just like the other ones. He looked more trustworthy, more lovable, more caring. He was in charge of the money. He did miracles by Christ's power. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So then he dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered in him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Judas knew where Christ prayed. He knew where he, he went to meet with God. He led a cohort of soldiers to him and chose that place to set his trap. Judas walks up to him, and with the sign of a kiss, the Roman officials take Jesus away, and he betrays and denies his master. His actions end up destroying him. Welled up with guilt, he kills himself. And I believe, as Peter is writing this about false teachers, also in the back of his head, as we looked at 1 Peter, a lot of what he writes is personal. 
is close to his heart. And he had someone who was close as a friend fit these characteristics. Peter knows that Christ warned him of the false teachers that would come. Maybe information that was passed to him from people in these churches seemed to be making that true. The teachers are coming. They are already among the believers. They are carrying them away. As Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This warning connected with 2 Timothy and where we're at in Peter gives us the first emphasis of the sermon, the first point. And that is for us to get out of this is how to be the church from 2 Peter in light of false teachers. So in light of the petri dish of this growth in the churches, which is the false teachers, point one is to endure sound teaching. As a church with false teachers, we are to endure sound teaching. So as to not follow or even allow false teachers to gain a foothold in congregations. For if we are to link ourselves to false teaching, whether it sounds good or whether we like it or whether we begin to slowly follow it more, listen more to false teaching, the teachers will draw their listeners into destructive ways, ways that will not only shame us for following them, but also shame the world's view of us, as has happened time and again, from the Crusades even to the modern times today. Now, it is in greediness that these teachers will exploit the church. The word greediness indicates that they want more and more. It's fairly easy to understand. They have an insatiable thirst for more. They want an increase, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's fame. They always want more. Notice that it can be seen that if a person pastors out of the position or mindset of what can I get out of this congregation or this position, instead of what can I give from it, that is a sign. Like the Pharisees that Peter encountered in the gospel, like the false apostles that Paul fights against in the Corinthian letters, and just like Judas, who approaches the Pharisees and says this, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We can see right away from Peter's command in 1 Peter 5 the type of person that we should be looking for and the type of things that they should be doing. Peter 5, 1 Peter 5 says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, also on a side note, this is not to say that a teacher or a pastor who desires a fair wage for the work that he puts into preaching and guiding and helping people, locking and unlocking the church. It's not to say that he is not worthy of that. 
Paul speaks against this by saying that, in fact, a worker is worthy of their wages. And most pastors sit in a precarious situation when it comes to this topic. Too many pastors have sullied or dirtied the idea that the church asks for money. Whether it was the indulgences of the Catholic Church in the past or the many building projects that a church has, being in the position of leadership over a congregation implies that he will be asking or encouraging at times for the church members to give. So, our next point on how to be the church from Second Peter is to give out of a willing heart to the church, but also hold the church and its leaders accountable to its uses. And this will help to weed out false teachers who use the church's funds for their own personal gains, or foolishly. Does the false teacher buy exotic trips around the world for him and his family, or is the money for food for them? Does he spend it promoting his next book, or does it go towards the leaky roof in the children's room, the jam door, or the church food pantry? We, as an elder board and the elders, um, have done the practice of allowing members to look at just exactly how money is spent. So I would encourage you that if that ever disappears, to be aware and wary. You as a church have a responsibility to know just how leaders are using funds. And we, as leaders, feel that it's necessary to allow that to you, which is a fantastic sign for where we're at as a church. I've been in churches where that's not the case, and usually scandals come from it. Somebody is siphoning money or taking things. Greedy pastors seek to make merchandise out of you. The word exploit here literally means to make merchandise out of you, to use the church as something that they can get money from. Whether they emphasize, oh, if you give $200, the Lord will bless this ministry and he will take away your debt and he will increase hundredfold to you if you only give money to this ministry. It's things like these. I remember watching a Christian pastor on a broadcasting network show that this pastor was talking about their ministry. And sure enough, they bring up plenty of people that have testimonies saying, when I started giving to this ministry, I didn't have a job. I got a job now. When I started giving to this ministry, my family was sick, but now they're healed. They start telling of these miraculous things that are done because they gave money to this person or this ministry. I know of a pastor in Africa who had received money from American supporters, and he would send back to them pictures of these great revivals where people were coming to Christ. Yet those weren't revivals that he put on. Those were revivals that he attended. And this church was very upset to find out that he had, buy, he had been buying cars, houses, expensive things, and not doing any portion of ministry work. These type of pastors and teachers seek to make the congregation and this pulpit a way to gain wealth. They build up the congregation with fake air balloon words. They're not the words of encouragement that Peter loves, the words that edify the body and church. These are not the stone foundation of what we believe, of the apostles and the prophets. These are not the words of life that engage the believers. They're fake sales tactics and witty sayings. So, our next point on how to be the church in the midst of false teachers is to know the difference between fake words and the words of life and the words of truth. 
when Paul preached to the people in Berea, a little town, in Acts 17, they took all the things that he said, and they studied the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. We as a church must be willing to do this. It's semi-easy. If you look at key points of teaching, there is a lack of Christ, a lack of direct biblical reference, a lack of personal belief in following God's way. We are to be like those people that look for counterfeit money. My youth pastor used this analogy many years ago, and I still find it to be easily remembered and to fit in the context of this passage. When somebody is studying to find counterfeit money, they don't study the fake thing. They study the real thing. They understand its nuances, its curves, its lines, its things that you look up at the light and can examine it and search it. And then when something fake comes along, they're able to say, this is missing this. This is, has too much of this. This isn't right. This isn't true. It's a counterfeit. It's a fake. They can spot the phony money right away. Now, as we move on, Peter steps into a, a very long single sentence. And this reminds his readers that the condemnation of these false teachers is reserved and will happen. So if you look at your Bibles, I don't know exactly how they're laid out in the different sections, but 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, is a conditional sentence. Verses 4 to 8 is a set of circumstances. The if of the conditional sentence. Verses 9 to 10 draw the conclusion from the if. This is the then, the if-then sentence. So if you would join with me on reading the ifs from verse 4 to verse 8. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. These are our ifs. They set us up for the good conclusion of then. The angels who sinned here, many believe to refer to Genesis 6, where these angels came down and chose to sleep with women and make children from them. While it's possible and many people agree that this is what it says, I, think, I don't think that's the intended meaning. Peter may be alluding to this story from First Enoch, and if you read some documents I put up or if you um, looked at some of the things from First Peter 3, he seems to be drawing from this tradition of these angels cohabiting with women and uh, being cursed by God. But here Peter doesn't specify their sins, simply that it happened. And what I believe he's referring to is something that Christ says in Luke 10, 18, where he says to them, I saw Satan fall like, he like lightning from heaven. This is an occurrence attested to in Revelation as well, where Satan and the angels fall, and they become fallen angels. And I believe that Peter intends to be talking about that here. It's a small point of different understandings and different beliefs, but we'll continue on to the flood of the ancient world, where Peter brings in Noah, who he says was a preacher of righteousness, 
not just a guy that built a boat, but a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. And it is clear that God judged the world because of the corruption of those men who were multiplying on the earth at the time. From Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then he moves on to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can find this story in Genesis 19 if you want to read through it. But throughout other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, including right here in Peter, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a, a warning to the ungodly to not follow in their footsteps, to not follow in the things that they did. And we notice that he was also able to bring Lot out of these cities, righteous Lot. So all the ifs can be boiled down from the stories, the traditions that Peter pulls from them. They can be boiled down to three things. The first one is God punishes the unrighteous angels. And then God punishes the unrighteous world, yet saves the righteous Noah. And then God punishes the unrighteous Sodom and Gomorrah, yet saves the righteous Lot. As the progression shows from punishing the ungodly to punishing the ungodly and rewarding the righteous, we begin to see he's setting up for his then statement. If these things happen, then this will happen. And the ifs are all past tense, something that's already happened. So then, by knowing that, you can trust that the then statements will be much more true. If somebody has a if-then statement and the if hasn't occurred, that, hasn't occurred yet, the then is a little bit further from occurring. But if the if has occurred, you can trust the then. Are you tracking a lot of if-then conditional statements? But we'll read the thens found in verses 9 to 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So we can hold to the truth of knowing that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly in today's world as well. These ungodly false teachers, they'll follow after their own lusts, they seek more and more things. They draw more and more away from the congregation. One of the hints is when a teacher promotes teaching that encourages sinning in one way or another, that's always a sign that you can tell that something's wrong. So the last point for how to be the church from Second Peter in light of false teachers is to stand steadfast in your journey knowing that God will deliver you and punish false teachers. No matter how high or holy any teacher seems, do not follow teaching that denies the lordship of Christ, that denies the factual stain of sin in our lives, or the teaching that denies the words of Scripture, the words of God. There will be false teachers until the return of Christ. There will be wolves creeping in wearing sheep's clothing. But we as the body of Christ are to stick to him as our head, as our Lord, as our teacher. Next week we will be looking at more specific ideas of what these false teachers do, what they look like, as we continue into Peter's 
main emphasis for this chapter. So I want to sum up my points that I drew from what he's teaching. It, it's hard to look at a list of false teachers and say, well, obviously you should avoid doing these things. If many of us aren't considering being false teachers ourselves, then from these passages, I hope that we can remember drawing these applications. There are many applications in different verses, and I think these are good applications for us as a church waiting a new pastor and also being taught to look to. So number one is endure sound teaching. Number two is give, our, give out of a willing heart to the church, but also hold that church and its leader, leaders accountable to its uses. Number three is know the difference between fake words and the words of truth and life. And number four is stand steadfast in your journey, knowing that God will deliver you. After Jesus makes it clear to his readers that Judas will betray him, not so clear to the apostles and those around him, but he institutes the Lord's Supper. He has all the disciples gathered together, and he institutes this thing that we will commemorate now. With open hearts, seeking to come to him, the teacher that gives us true words of life. Judas fails to notice that when he calls him rabbi, as he betrays him, that this is the true teacher. This is the true teacher that we are to follow. This is the true teacher that we are to come to for the words of life, to encourage us, to grow us as a church, to build us up on the strong foundation of his stone, strong words. The foundation of Christ is found in the Gospels, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we look at the future of our church and what it's like to be taught, what it's like to come here and leave here feeling encouraged by God, I want to point all of us to his word, to the teaching of Christ, as we hopefully and with open hearts wait for the next teacher to come in, to lead us as a shepherd in guiding us to waters that will give us life.